Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Farova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. Before we start today's interview, let me share a cool gift with you. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, which is something I know everyone listening to this podcast wants because it's called strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is a one-pager free download. You can get it on firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. Firms Consulting is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. And our guest today is Tobias Dangal. Tobias has an unusual, which is not unusual for Germany, but unusual for Americans, I guess, way to pronounce his name. And I love, I love the pronunciation. Tobias is the president of Villa 3, a Telus international company with over 20 years of technology experience. And Villa 3's clients include some of the best known brands in the world. T-Mobile, MasterCard, Capital One, HBO, Fox, Time Warner, PepsiCo, Johnson & Johnson, Hilton Hotels, National Geographic. So you guys did really well. Tobias, welcome. Welcome. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. So Villa3 is a great success story. And you started that company about 15 years ago. And I think that a good question to start with would be, what do you think were the key reasons you were able to successfully grow the company to the point that the company has been named by Inc. Magazine to the Inc. 5000 list of America's fastest growing companies for 11 years straight? Yeah, I think one of the key things in life is to see when uh, the environment changes, the world around us changes, and to understand what the trends are that are unleashed by those changes and then take advantage of those trends. Um, there's an old saying among stockbrokers, let the trend be your friend. Um, and I think that's that's what we've tried to do. I think the specific example for us was that in late 2008, Steve Jobs and Apple decided to open up the, um, the App Store and open that up to third-party developers. And then all of a sudden, you had a world where everyone wanted apps. You know, there were a million ideas for apps and every company wanted apps. But because it was a brand new technology, there were actually very, very few people who knew how to build these apps, that um, it was going to be a very important trend to follow. And that's how we got into that business is we figured out that if if we had the development talent to build applications, that there would be a huge amount of demand um, if we did it well for what we did. So that at its core was the initial idea. And so I think like most ideas and strategies, the idea is important, the trend's important. Uh, what's equally important and some would argue more important is execution. And so um, we spent a ton of time thinking about how do we attract the best and brightest talent? Because um, if we had that talent, we knew we would get customers because 
um, all those customers needed app developers and there just weren't enough in the environment. Could you take us back to those initial days? Were you considering multiple business opportunities and you settled on this one and anything else you could share that could give us a feel of what were the first initial months of building the company? Yeah, that's a great question. I can take you back to that time in my life. Um, I had started a previous company and that had been acquired and I'd been with the acquiring company for three years and I had left and basically wanted to take a year to figure out what to do next. And I had two business ideas at the time. One was to create a competitor to uh, VRBO or Airbnb, which would be a free service. And then the other idea was to get, get into mobile and get into take advantage of the mobile wave that, that was coming that I felt was going to be a really, really big deal. Um, one of those two ideas failed and one succeeded. <laughs> um, I think the, the, the lesson I learned, you always learn probably more from your failures than you do your success. The, the one that failed, uh, the reason it failed is because we did not invest enough in marketing, right? We, we built a great service that I would argue at the time was as good as what VRBO or Airbnb was doing. But we failed to take into account that you have to spend literally tens of millions of dollars even then to build a consumer brand. Um, and we thought we could do it by word of mouth and it just, it didn't happen for us. Um, on the other side, um, you know, we started Willow Tree with three people. And at first we were we knew mobile was going to be a really big deal, but we didn't know what our piece of the action was going to be. We didn't know how are we going to take full advantage of this wave. And there were really two ways to do it. One is you could build a mobile application or a company around a mobile application. I think the best example of that's probably Uber. They built an extraordinary new application around, you know, hailing a, 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 at first a limousine in San Francisco. Um, or you could build a services company where you do the work for other companies. And, you know, when you're looking at those, the product companies always, if you get it right, it's going to be the bigger home run. Um, but it's much higher risk and it requires much more capital. And we were located in Charlottesville, Virginia, and I had young kids and I was like, there's just no way we're going to be able to raise 10, 20, 50, $100 million like a Silicon Valley company or a New York company or a Seattle company is going to do. What can we do here? And we came upon the idea that if we got into the services side, um, we could attract extraordinary talent because we're in a university town, super smart people graduate, not just from the University of Virginia, but lots of regional schools, but want to live in a college town like Charlottesville. And that was going to be our secret sauce. Um, and, uh, you know, Forbes, I think in 2011, wrote an article about us that's, that was called being a big fish in a small pond um, and, and that being a strategy for talent acquisition. And so our goal was to aggregate talent in a place like Charlottesville, Virginia, where the cost of that is much lower than New York or San Francisco. The cost of living is much lower. Um, and so be able to compete on the services side. That was really the original vision. So smart. There are so many lessons to learn from what you're sharing. Thank you so much for going into details. So you started with apps. How did you found your first few clients? So um, a couple different ways. Uh, and I think, you know, everyone at the end of the day, um, 
has to do both or one of these. So one was word of mouth, right? I had was lucky to start my career off at AOL. So I knew a lot of people in digital um, throughout you know, North America, certainly. And I was able to contact them and call them and say, hey, we're doing, we're able to build apps. Do you need anything? And I got two or three um, very important deals. I think uh, one of the big first ones was Johnson & Johnson had acquired a company called Baby Center, which was based in California. And Baby Center at the time was used by nine out of 10 pregnant women in the United States to manage their pregnancy. And they didn't have an app. And the CEO of that company, Tina Sharkey, was a former colleague at AOL, and she hired us. And so that became one of the first portfolio pieces because you need a portfolio in almost anything you do, but certainly a services business. And the second was um, online marketing. We, were, My previous company was an online marketing company. And so we were really good at promoting our services online. So if you Googled app developers for hire, we would be on the first page and we would get lots and lots of phone calls. Now, I would say a lot of those were not super helpful. We would get phone calls at two in the morning from people who had been at bars all night and had the next big app idea. Like those weren't the clients we were looking for, but we also got plenty of folks from, I remember one day Walmart called us because they Googled, they wanted a new app built and they didn't know who to go to and they just Googled it. So when a new market like this emerges, um, you know, at, at that time and still today, people will go to Google to find um, providers and partners. And so those were really the channels, word of mouth, which is always incredibly important and digital marketing. So a lot of the things worked out because of course, one, you guys were working really hard to deliver for your clients. People were happy. But then at the same time, you were smart enough to identify, well, everyone is smart, but you were, I guess you had all the right dots aligned for you to identify the moment where it was very advantageous to start this company because there was lack of supply, but a lot of demand. And you started getting some big clients. And then once you have even one big client, it's easier land the next big client and so on so how did it evolve from there so you know we started in 2009 at, uh, on january 1st 2010 there were three of us january 2011 a year later there were seven so doubling the growth which seemed like a really big deal but then the following year we were 23 people so it started to accelerate um and it was in never ending balance of finding new clients and finding the talent to serve those clients and manage the projects. And very quickly, it became apparent that, you know, we started off building iPhone apps, but, you know, very quickly folks asked us, well, we need someone to design the apps. We need someone to test the apps. We need someone to build us an Android app. And then it became, well, you did such a great job for us on the apps. Can you do our website? And so very quickly um, it, the business expanded and we had the extraordinary good fortune to hire a great team. Um, and I think the people you hire in that first two, three years of whether you're putting up, you know, a new organization within a company or a new standalone company itself, that's just, those are some of the most critical decisions you make in your life because a lot of those folks are still with us to this day, leading whole divisions of this company and um, getting, so, you know, early days, it's all about strategy and some marketing and sales. And then very quickly, it becomes about 
who you hire and how you manage those people and how how they grow and how they're able to hire new folks. And it turns into a, a human capital kind of focused life versus a strategy focused life. Now you're still doing a lot of strategy because you're saying, do we want to go into this market? Do we not want to go into this other market? So those decisions happen all the time. Um, but you have to have the right team who's executing for you every day. And how did you select those first two people to join you at the very beginning? That's a great question. So they were all folks here in the community. I think in 2009, 2010, 2011, all these meetup communities started to spring up around mobile development and mobile design. And we were very active in them. And some of the folks were already in Charlottesville. Some of them were more regional. We got a couple of people to, to come um, work for us. A lot of it was at conferences. So Apple started doing the Worldwide Developer Conference. And we would go there and we would talk about some of the clients we had and some of the work we were doing. And we were able to, to hire more developers there who then joined us here in Virginia. Um, but it was a lot of, you know, that was the big struggle at first is to, is to in, in a world where they could get jobs anywhere, convincing them that we were working on something pretty interesting and pretty cool. Bison, what do you think were the biggest challenges during those initial days? So I think it's, you know, early days, especially I think in any company, but especially a services company, it's the never ending game of Tetris, where you're trying to fit potential projects and clients in with the team that you have. And, you know, frankly, you're, um, you're faking it a little bit when you're pitching because you don't, you might not have the team that, that can deliver it. And um, I think one of our biggest breaks came in 2012 when we were um, pitching uh, what became a, a really critical client for us at the time, HBO. Uh, we were pitching them and uh, they had another agency, another company that was building their platform. And the CEO of that company met with us at HBO headquarters in New York. And at the end, he just looked at us and said, are you guys going to screw this up or not? And we said, no, sir, we are not going to screw it up. And he said, fine, you're hired. That is amazing to hear. Thank you for sharing it. Do you feel that there are some equally big opportunities right now that you could share that you know you don't have capacity to explore? Because I think that our listeners now would want me to ask you this question, given your good ability at identifying good opportunities. Yeah, I think the biggest is AI, right? Um, the uh, the the exact same demand supply difference that was in two thousand nine, two thousand ten, for mobile is now in AI, and so we're obviously very interested in that. But that's going to be a huge trend going forward. There are many more open positions for AI data scientists today then there are available human beings to fill those positions. So it's the same, you know, you, you said it earlier, and I think you're exactly right. These opportunities happen when there's an imbalance between supply and demand. And right now there's a balance imbalance between supply and demand in the, in the AI space, generally in the generative AI space specifically. Now, you know, I think like anything, there's a bit of a hype cycle where I think some of that's going to get pulled back a little bit, but 
it's undeniable that generative AI and AI conversational AI and this whole AI ecosystem is going to change our lives probably as much or more than mobile did and you know the internet did when I it's kind of the third wave. Um and in fact that's why I wrote a book about it, or I'm writing a book that's coming out in October is really talking about that specific inflection point of this meeting of conversational AI and generative AI. And they think conversational AI specifically is a big area, and that's why you focused on it in your book, or is it just personal interest, but you think it's not limited to just conversational? You know, we've been asked for, you know, we've been doing this now for 12, 14 years, and one of the questions our clients ask us all the time is what's next? They said, all right, there was the internet, then there was mobile. We're like 12, 14 years from really the advent of mobile as we know it today. Now, mobile was coming for a long time, like going all the way back to the late 90s, there was WAP and all these other things. But really mobile, I think, in our started when the iPhone came out. That's what changed it. Um, just like AI changed when ChatGPT 3.5 came out in November. It's, a, it's very analogous. But people have been asking us this forever. If you went back 10 years and you went, you were, you were at um, the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, they would have told you that 3D television is the next big thing, but no one has any 3D TVs. Three or four years later, they would have told you that AR and Google Glass is the next big thing, but that obviously didn't happen. Um, and so we get asked this, and I, I'm always asking myself, what use does the technology have for the end user, right? That's, how, that's the lens you have to use, right? And the internet had obvious uses. Mobile, even if it you viewed it as simplistically as the internet in your pocket, had a lot of uses. But voice, you know, we were we were asking ourselves, why is why are people buying Alexas at this incredible rate? And up until ChatGPT, the fastest adoption of any technology was voice, mainly through Alexa and Siri. And you kind of ask yourself, why do people want voice? And the answer is because we can speak so much faster than we can type. We can speak three times as fast as we can type. So it, it solves a major human need, right? How fast can you communicate? The problem with voice is that we also can read much faster than we can listen. So like any new technology, if you go back to television, right? The first TV shows were basically broadcasts of radio shows or plays. Like it takes a long time for people to really figure out how to use a new technology. So the early voice experiences were all voice to voice, right? You would say something to Alexa, Alexa would respond. But we don't, that's not very efficient. We want to say things to Alexa, but then we want things to happen or we want to see it on a screen. So multimodal is going to be the future because it really, really, really accelerates our communication, right? If I can say, hey, order me two pizzas from Domino's and this is what's on them and I see it on my screen, I just say, yes, confirm. That's the future. And so that's why we got super interested in it, because um, it is going to change the entire user interface of how we interact with machines. And then this generative AI thing is the engine behind it, right? It What makes it all possible, because now we, now we can actually understand how good these tools are at responding to us. So this marriage of conversational AI and generative AI is, is you know, it it is... An extraordinary time, right? I, I do feel like it's 2008, 2009, or 1998, 1999. It's that same kind of thing, which we just haven't had for 14 or 15 years, where the world is this wide open. And if we compare it to an opportunity 
when people wanted apps and they needed someone to design and build it for them. And if we look at AI opportunity now for non-technical people who want to start some kind of business, and of course, don't say anything that you guys are working on, but something maybe will come to mind that, that you guys don't have capacity to focus on as ideas for people. What do you feel people need as it relates to AI that someone can start a company to provide? Yeah, so I think there's two, just like with mobile, I think there's two broad categories. I think there will be a lot of companies that come out of um, this period of time that use generative AI or, or conversational AI to build a product that changes an industry. Um, and the industry, you know, and, and there's all kinds of ideas. And usually it's people that have some relationship to that industry because they understand the problems in that industry. So, it, you know, education is a big one. Customer experience, customer service is a big area that's changing. How software is written um, is a big area that's changing. But it, essentially anywhere where people are entering data right now on a keyboard, which is in a lot of places, right? One of them is healthcare, right? Right now, when you go talk to your doctor, he or she is usually typing away on their computer while they're talking to you, which is kind of insane, right? Because in theory, you're saying it, it should be picked up by a mic, should be transcribed, and AI will then analyze what you're saying. So the doctor typing the keyboard is is, is a will will seem in a few years like a very backward approach to how a doctor would interface with a patient. Um, because it was all all be supported by AI. So within all these industries, companies are being formed right now and there are huge opportunities. And the other side is kind of what happened last time as well is the services side is, you know, the the people that sell the picks and shovels during the gold rush. Um, and again, this is a place that, that we're going to be participating in more is the services so that people ha might have ideas or large companies have problems that they want to solve using generative AI or conversational AI, but they just don't have the teams. They can't hire fast enough. Um, they need a partner that helps them really think through what the strategy is, how much it's going to cost, get the budget allocated, and then build, build something new for them using the new platforms. Thank you. That was very helpful, especially for people who don't have enough background related to technology and AI. I think that was such a wonderful answer. So I'm starting to wrap up here our conversation about Villa Tree so that we can move on to talking about your book. But something I wanted to ask you about the Villa Tree, I know you guys place a lot of focus on values and you have a specific process on how you came up with the values, then you you actually constantly update your values, you have a process for that. And you also have some very interesting values. I really loved, for example, floor as one of your values. So maybe we could speak about that and then we can move to speak about your upcoming book. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, as I was saying, you go through stages when you're growing a company. And I mentioned the second stage where you're really trying to build the team. And then the third stage is you have to build your culture, right? Because what is culture? Culture is how human beings interact with each other and what is what is what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. And, you know, these days, I think almost every company has core values, but usually those core values are created by the C-suite or the CEO or the board. And it's basically, here's how we want everyone to behave. It's kind of what it is at the end of the day. As we were growing past 200 people, 
which is a really important number, 150 people to 200 people is this concept of Dunbar's number where you don't know, you know, 150 people up to 200, you kind of know everyone, you kind of know their name, kind of know what's it, what it's about. Once you get beyond that, it's impossible for most people, certainly for me. So that's when culture starts really becoming important and you need norms that people can point to and say, you know, that that's what we stand for. And so when we got to that point, we shut the company down for a day. We grabbed everyone and put a bunch of sticky notes all around and said, what are the things you never want to see change at Willow Tree as it grows? And people wrote, you know, hundreds of things on post-it notes. And then we organized them into uh, what became then seven core values. And then we played those back to the team and said, hey, does everyone agree? This is kind of what we're saying. And I think some of them you'll find it a lot of companies, things like ownership. Um, if you're if you get assigned something, you're kind of going to be all over it, and you're going to go above and beyond to make sure things happen. Um, but as you point out, one of one of my favorite is well, it might, it might be my favorite of all is is the core value of flow. And what was interesting is um, that really came out of a lot of the team members saying what we love about Willow Tree is is we're able to do the work and find value in the work in and of itself. And that as we get bigger, we're spending more and more times, more and more time in meetings, more and more time in doing things that are not um, why we got into this job in the first place. And so we said, well, that's that sounds a lot like flow, this concept of kind of, you know, I don't know how many, how many, flows is, is a more well-known concept than it was maybe 10 years ago, but this concept that um, human experience and happiness is largely driven by how much time a day you spend in total concentration and focus on whatever you're doing. It could be a hobby, it could be what you're doing at work, et cetera. But we 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 kind of gathered around this concept that if we can have our team members spend more time focused, A, they're going to be happier. It's what they want, but B, we're going to be way more productive than our competitors. And when you do analysis, like a first software developer, if you can really, really be coding four or five hours a day versus being in meetings, versus in planning, et cetera, A, you're happier and B, you're much more effective. The average software developer in the United States spends only about an hour and a half to two coding a day. So we'd be two or three times more effective than our competition and happier. That seemed like you know a very holy place to get to. And so... That became a core value, and you know we talk about it a lot internally. We every day, every team had a certain amount of hours that they're supposed to be in flow. You're not supposed to be on chat or Slack or whatever it is. You're just supposed to be in deep concentration. And we know it's working when our clients come to us and say, "Hey, we've instituted flow time as well," because uh, we see how powerful it is. But that's it's it's something that um, has been really special for us. And when you update the values, do you ever have a situation where people want to change a value? Do you ever have those arguments? Yeah. So every two years, we take it to the company and get input and and, and we've changed them along the way. Um, so um, we used to have, um, you know, it used to be called the golden rule. Now we've called it inclusion because really it's that it, it's, it's, it's been tweaked some we used to have one called optimism. Now we call it realistic optimism because folks felt like we were just asking people to smile even when things were horrible. 
which was not the intent. It was more the Stockdale paradox of like you you keep going no matter what. You don't know how you're going to get through it, but you'll eventually get through it. Um, but every two years we send it out for comment and we take the comments back and then we read it back, back to the team and said, is this what folks are saying, et cetera? And we obviously can't get, you know, we're 1,100 people now, so we can't get everyone necessarily to opine on it um, or to feel comfortable that it's their view. But we, but for the most part, people are super excited about it. Um, and so that's been our process. Every two years, we put them back out for the thing. Now, I do limit it to seven because I think if you go, if you have like 11 people, I mean, it's hard enough to remember seven things, let alone 11. So um, that's the only constraint we've put on it from a top-down basis. So there are seven, ownership, flow, inclusion, realistic optimism. What are the other three? Oh gosh! See now you're gonna you're gonna put me on the on the spot. So which ones did you say? I have you... ownership, flow, yeah. inclusion, which used to be golden rule, and realistic optimism, which used to be optimism. Yeah. So um, we have craft, which is that we're all crafts people. We really want to do something well. Um, and we want people here who think their job is, um, an, you know, an avocation is something that they desire to have. Open communication. So we're, you know, big fans of, I know there are flaws in every book, but um, kind of the, 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 a lot of the communication books, like, um, what was the the big one about um, open communication? A couple, uh, I forgot it. I'll, I'll come back to it. Um, and then partnership, right? Partnership is where partners, not just to each other, but to our clients um, as well. And so those are kind of the other three that that make up the group. I'm glad you asked me on that. I always have to, because people ask me that all the time and I kind of have to scramble to make sure I remember them all. And you remember the most important ones and we all forget things and they also keep on changing. So, but thank you so much for sharing with us the history of how they changed and what they are, because I think it is really helpful. So let's dive in into your new upcoming book. Let's start by talking about how will voice technology, especially accelerated by development in AI, have the potential to alter the way we live just day to day as humans and also how companies do business. Yeah, so as I was saying earlier, I think that the interface revolution is going to be around the fact that we are going to be drawn to using voice for almost every interaction we can with our machines. And we see it now, like we love to dictate our text messages, but then if I were to get a text message from you, Chris, I would want to read it. I wouldn't want to listen to it because it's so much faster. And so that we've kind of naturally ended up there without even thinking about it, but that's the future, right? And so um, what taken to its furthest extent, and we're running a lot of experiments on that, when you're speaking to an app, as an example, and you're ordering pizza, it's not just that you say something and then the app reacts and you say something, it's this call and response mechanism that is the basis of human conversation historically. What's really gonna happen is we're gonna talk and as we are speaking, the device is going to do something. So if I'm ordering two pizzas from Domino's or I'm ordering movie tickets tonight for Star Wars, by the time I'm finished speaking, the order will be complete on the screen. And then I will just say, yes. And so what we've learned is that 
every interaction that increases our ability to the, the velocity at which we can achieve something as humans is going to win, right? Uh, one of my favorite stats is for every two seconds in delay on loading a web page, you lose 30% of your audience, right? We are impatient. And the next generation is even more impatient than our generation. And so everything's going to get this, this need for speed is going to drive the adoption of voice, right? So that's, you have to believe that. I think that's, it's hard to argue against that. So then once you have the voice, you have to think about what are the implications of that? And that's really what we spend a lot of time in the sound of the future talking about is what are all the downstream implications by industry, by areas where um, voice really um, creates a, uh, a meaningful advantage? So what are those areas, largely speaking? So one is anytime we're entering data, right? So all the time that we collectively spend on our keyboards at work is gonna be replaced by voice. So then you got to think about like, all right, well, what does that mean for the office environment? If we're all just talking to our systems, what does it mean for software development? If you're instructing the system, what to do, what to do by a voice versus uh, typing. So for example, radiologists are already doing this. If you go into modern radiology offices, they have pods that they close and the radiologist is just in a pod dictating so that they don't interrupt the folks around them. You can achieve some of the same things by using headphones, of course, or how much time are we going to spend at home where we're not disturbing people near us? So there's all these second and third order implications of what the world will be like when we're primarily using voice to interact with machines. And I think some of our listeners now thinking, okay, Tobias, I understand that voice AI is powerful, but is it really bigger deal than other things that are happening related to AI. So maybe we can expand a little bit more on why you think specifically voice is something that we need to pay attention to and start adapting into our lives so we can be more effective as leaders. Yeah, so um, if you think about why do new technologies get adopted, it they have to fulfill a core human need, right? As I've said, one core human need is speed. The other is for information and access, direct access to that information. And those two things are sometimes related, but I'll give you an example, right? The average banking app right now in the United States has about 300 pieces of functionality. There's 300 or so things you can do with that app. Um, organizing 300 use cases on a screen with navigation is really, really hard, right? That means you have to have menus, submenus, boom, boom, boom. So what's going to happen is that app is going to be completely voice powered um, in very short order, right? If I ask you, Chris, hey, use your banking app, your Citibank app to reorder checks, I can immediately see your blood pressure going up because you're like, that's going to be a giant pain to figure out how to do that. But if you can open the app and say, reorder my checks and you get a confirmation, boom, that's going to happen. So when changes like this happen in user interface, which ultimately mobile was just a better user interface to the internet than, than desktop, when those happen, there are rapid, rapid changes and rapid adoption by users for those companies that are embracing it. And so that's, that's, a convenience factor when you think about things like um, at work, um, 
you know, experiences that can be changed, it's an equally big deal, right? So we work with one of the largest beverage companies in the United States. They have 10,000 people in the field that are just repairing machines, moving machines, installing things at restaurants and bars. They have hundreds of thousands of SKUs of parts because they've got 30 years of install, installed machines that are all different. Um, most of them have 20 or 30 print catalogs in their trucks. And then recently they've had iPads, but to use the iPad, you have to use a search function, et cetera. But if we know, all right, you're in front of a certain machine and you're going to say, hey, I need this part right now. Um, and you can say it and it instantly is ordered. It takes 20 to 30 minutes out of the average time that these technicians spend at customer site. So these are huge implications, um, in some ways bigger than mobile on efficiencies and performances within, within enterprise. The other thing I would say, the final one is the metaverse for all its criticism um, is happening slowly. And I think Apple Vision Pro is another move forward in this space. It only happens with voice because you're never going to interact with the metaverse with a keyboard, right? So if the metaverse is going to happen, it has to, voice has to happen first, right? And so I think all these things kind of point us to a world where the voice interface is going to fundamentally change industry after industry after industry because of how efficient it is. It is incredible how much easier our life can be with that type of technology, personal life, and also in terms of your work, how much time we can save. So let's talk about how fast do you think will be the adoption? How fast do you think we will actually start seeing our life being improved because of voice? Because so far it has been very minor. A hundred percent, right? When the um, when Alexa came out, it had all this adoption, right? But most people use it to check the weather, order maybe a couple of things from Amazon, get the news, control their speakers, kind of it. Um, but as I said, the reason for that is because it was a two-way voice interface. And so um, the magic that is about to unleash this is generative AI. Um, because generative AI is going to allow us to take all the different things that human beings say and program the machine to know what the intent was. And so it's kind of a backwards way, I think, from most how most people think about generative AI. So Google released a document two, three years ago that said there are 4,000 ways that in English people ask to set their alarm. Um, so if you think about that problem, what we can do now is we can ask generative AI, create, give us all the different ways that people might set their alarm and hopefully generative AI will give us the 4,000 or at least most of the 4,000. And then we can tell the machine, hey, if you hear any of these 4,000 things, what the user really means is set my alarm, right? So it's using generative AI to unlock the potential of voice um, that I think is, is why this is all going to happen right now very quickly. Um, and I think for the first time, people can see because of chat 3.5, chat GPT 3.5, and now 4, how powerful these tools are going to be. Now that we are speaking about setting an alarm, how will voice technology make life and work safer? Yeah, so um, one of the chapters in the book is exactly about this issue of safety. And one of the, when, when you look at some of the big 
things that have gone wrong in the last decade, um, they all ultimately stem from an inability of a human being to communicate with a machine in a very high stress environment. So um, the big BP blow up in the Gulf of Mexico happened over hours as human beings tried to control um, what was going on and the pressure was building and they couldn't communicate um, effectively with the systems around them. And since then, uh, I think it was Stanford students developed a, a mechanism whereby a voice controlled system could have easily shut that accident down midway through. Then Boeing 737 MAX disasters, those three horrible crashes um, that cost at the end of the day over a thousand people their lives plus um, billions and billions of dollars for Boeing. They were all caused by the fact that the pilots did not know how to interact with the system. They were trying to tell the autopilot to do something and they couldn't understand what the autopilot was doing. Um, and if they had voice commands, they would have been able to do that. And since then, there's been an incredible amount of work. Um, both the U.S. and the Russian Air Forces in the last two or three years have released voice controls for their pilots um, as an example. And so the, this where humans interact with machines in high-stress environments, um, voice is going to um, unleash and, and make everything a lot safer. And when you think about it, right, most machines are today, they're driven by knobs and pulleys and keyboards. What are those? At the end of the day, it's just a way for a human being to tell a machine what to do. And in many cases, it's going to be much more effective to use your voice to do that. What industry do you think will change a lot for the most, or maybe a few industries in the next few years because of voice technology? So um, customer service, I think, is the center of the whole thing, right? Because um, we will we still do a lot of our interactions with customer service departments via voice. Again, for all the reasons we're just talking about, it's it's super efficient. But the customer experience these days can be very stressful, long wait times, um, having to explain things multiple times, not to mention the complexity with authentication, then getting bounce from rep to rep. I think the optimization of customer service is in the near term um, the biggest opportunity. I'm not alone in saying that. McKinsey just released a study that said 75% of the value of um, AI in the next few years is going to be in software development and in customer service. So that's one piece. And then software development is another one because you're just entering data, entering information um into um into systems i think though for any company thinking about where you know how how information is entered into their systems and where voice can play a role is just a critical critical strategic um imperative over the next couple of years and it could be through customer service but it could be how their employees are doing it you know, I always talk about, you know, Wendy's and McDonald's in the last six months just have released new AI powered kiosks. Because if you think about it, it's kind of insane that there's human beings whose only job it is to translate your cheeseburger order into a keyboard, right? And so this is, it's happening right now. And so um, it's no longer something that's happening 
in the future. It's going to, in, in 24 and 25, it's going to have a market impact on, um, you know, lots and lots of industries, but, but specifically where human beings are interacting with almost every company where employees are acting, interacting with their own company, right? We're building, as an example, HR tools for clients where um, the uh, you could ask it, like, how many vacation days do I have left? Or, um, you know, how does FMLA work at this company? Or I just had another child. How do I add them to my um, to my coverage, right? Those should be things that you don't have to search through document and document fill out. You should be able to do those in three seconds using your voice. What do you think could be some of the applications of this technology for consulting firms? Yeah, so I think knowledge management is the most obvious one, is um, all these consulting firms, right, have an incredible amount of information that they've gained from all the engagements they've had with their clients. And how do they make that available internally via an easily accessible and navigable via voice-based tools, um, I think is a huge opportunity. The other one is, you know, helping clients realize the vision and the promise of everything that they can do with these voice-based tools as well. And with the first opportunity using it for knowledge management, I would see it as a big concern for consulting firms to put all their stuff into AI because they don't know who else is going to be getting access to it and how it will be used. Yeah, I mean, I think that is an internal use case for them. Like they need to lock that. That is their proprietary information or their client's proprietary information. So they need to be very careful about locking that down. But I think these systems are so much better. You know, in the past, you had to like use use search um, to find things, right? And you had to get the query right. And people are reluctant to write very long queries because it just takes time. Whereas the voice, the combination of voice and generative AI allows you to have much longer queries and a much more conversational interface with all that information and knowledge to actually get to what you want. Anything else that you wish I asked you? Anything else you want to share before we speak about how people can learn more about you? Yeah, I mean, I would just say, I think this is as an exciting a time of, as, you know, to be um, to be working in the space or to start a new company or to start about, to think about your strategic options for your current company as we've had in over a decade. Um, and I think it is, um, you know, this combination of generative AI and voice AI um, just makes, makes, life as fun um, in it when you're thinking about strategy and you're thinking about the future um, as it has been. I think that, you know, when you, when we got 10 years into mobile, it kind of felt like what's next? Like this is, this is a really interesting and fun time to be, to be active. Where can our listeners learn more about you, get your book and so on? Yeah. So Easiest way to find me is on LinkedIn. Just reach out. Reach out. I'm um, Tobias Dengel at at uh, at LinkedIn. Um, at you know, I'm the CEO or president of Willow Tree, uh, which is part of now of Telus International. We were acquired in in January, which has been a wonderful thing. And then the book is called uh, The Sound of the Future. It's coming out in October, and you can pre-order it on Amazon or Barnes Noble or lots of other places right now. 
everywhere where the books can be sold. There you go. What authors usually say. Congratulations. And thank you so much for being a guest on our show today. Thank you for sharing some very powerful advice and lessons. And I think it was a, such a helpful session for everyone who was carefully listening, making notes and applying it to their life. For everyone listening, make sure you check Tobias's book. It is called The Sound of the Future. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is a free one pager that is currently available for free to download. And you can get it on firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And firms consulting is F-I-R-M-S consulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care and I look forward to connect with you all very soon. Thank you, Chris. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.